This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Scragg, and I'm here today with Dr. Robert Minchin from Arecibo Observatory. So, welcome. Thank you, Tom. It's great being here with you today. Okay, I understand you've been to Manchester before and worked at projects at Jodrell Bank? Uh, yes, I have. I've visited the city centre of Manchester here for a couple of meetings, the IAU meeting back in, who was it, 2000, when I was a postgrad in Cardiff, and then I came over here when I was in Arecibo for the uh, 50th anniversary of Jodrell Bank meeting. Also used the Lovell Telescope out at Jodrell Bank quite extensively for neutral hydrogen surveys for galaxies, uh, particularly when I was based down in Cardiff. Did you actually get to come and use the telescope as in the sense of being here and taking the data on site? Or is it, please go and look at this and then give me all the data when, you, when you've done it? Well, this was definitely the first of those. We were up here, we actually brought some equipment over from Australia where there was a parallel project going on at the Parkes Telescope in uh, New South Wales. And we installed equipment at Jodrell Bank. We worked out how to control the telescope or interfacing our equipment, our control system, which had come from Parks, with the Jodrell Bank drive system. Well, when I say we, that was mainly done by Christine Jordan out at Jodrell. And uh, we drove the telescope. We sat on site, uh, either staying in the barracks out there, for want of a better word for the place where visiting astronomers stay or in local B&Bs sometimes. Well known for being very cold in the middle of winter. I actually, at one point, wandering back, it was it must have been about this time of year, and Jodrell was covered in snow, and I walked back across from the, from the telescope to the quarters in the middle of the night, must have been about midnight, put my key in the lock, and it sheared off. Oh, dear. And so I had to find the security guard... Uh, it was about zero degrees, snow on the ground, and fortunately he was able to get some pliers and work the key out of the lock and issue me with a, a replacement key there and then in the middle of the night. Otherwise, I guess I'd have been sleeping in the control room or something. You'd think it'd be a long time ago, but that's, that must only be, what, 2000? Mm. That'd have been about 2000-ish, yeah. So those were the days when astronomers used to be on site. And I guess Jodrell Bank is not as remote as some sites, no, some no. observatories. No, certainly not. I mean, we used to have people flying down to Arecibo to use the telescope there quite regularly. The first time I used Arecibo, I flew out there for two nights of observing and then flew back again. And uh, they were just starting up then with what is now the standard observing mode of remote observing. And we hit a wonderful problem with the funding council at the time. The funding council, the uh, which was P-Park at that point, was willing to pay through the uh, funding to go to telescopes to fly someone out to Arecibo, but they were not willing to pay for the phone call to do the remote observing. And the <laughs> university needed a grant line to charge the phone call to. Okay. And eventually it was decided this could be charged a departmental overhead because it was a single phone call. And they asked P. Park, and P. Park came back with the answer, no, that is not covered as part of the grants for using telescopes. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely amazing. The politics and the bureaucracy bureaucracy there. So I guess these days it's it's Mm. all done remotely? These days it was all done remotely until the hurricane came through. Right. So the problem we've had now, as 
many of your listeners may be aware, back in September, Puerto Rico was hit by Hurricane Maria. This came through the island, caused a huge amount of destruction. And one of the things that was taken out was the phone lines and the internet connection to the observatory. We actually lost all power as well at the observatory in terms of the mains power, the commercial power to the outside world. The observatory has its own generators, though, so mm-hmm. we've been running on diesel generators until about a, a week or two back. We were running on those diesel generators. In terms of the phone lines, those were down, the internet connection was down. We got managed to get, after a couple of days, they'd sent a satellite phone down, which had got as far as San Juan, the major city in Puerto Rico, uh, where one of our staff picked it up and brought it to the observatory. And so within a week of the observatory, we were back communicating, but only via satellite phone. Now, the interesting thing about satellite phones, of course, is they work at the radio frequencies. In fact, they're, I think this one is in Elban, quite close to where we study the pulsars and my work in the hydrogen line. This means it does not work inside our shielded buildings. <laughs> and so to use this satellite phone, you had to go and stand outside, normally with a large umbrella, to, because in Puerto Rico it's either very, very sunny and you're getting sunburnt, or it's having a tropical downpour, sometimes both during the course of a single phone call. Oh, right. So it took a while. Within, a, I think it was nine days after the hurricane came through, we actually were first able to move the telescope, move the telescope enough to actually do track a source, make a detection of a pulsar. We didn't go back straight away to doing full observations, though, partly because, as I say, we were running entirely on diesel power. The, the government kept telling us it wasn't in short supply, the problem was the distribution, but it doesn't matter if it's in short supply, not in short supply at the docks, if it's in short supply where you actually need it. So yeah. the distribution was very rightly prioritising places like hospitals, and a radio observatory comes somewhere down the list... And so we weren't sure of our diesel supply and keeping the generator running. So we went into putting the telescope in, fixing it in position and doing a drift survey. We actually have a drift project that runs looking for pulsars just by parking the telescope and letting the Earth's rotation sweep it across the sky. And so then we only need to move it once a day and then we can turn the motors off and just leave the telescope parked there. And that obviously uses up less diesel than moving the telescope around uh, tracking sources and things like we normally do. Okay. So we ran in that mode for a bit over a month, and then we slowly returned to doing our normal tracking observation mode after that. But uh, and this is where it links through to the remote observing. The without the internet connection being reliable, we couldn't actually connect remote observers to connect through to the telescope and run it. So instead, they've been producing command scripts and sending them. We have a uh, low bandwidth internet connection and so we can get them on during the times when that's working properly and it's got better initially it was working very slowly sometimes it would stop entirely so they can send these command files and our operators can then run those and then they can call our cell phones from their satellite phones when things go wrong I i think we all forget how maybe not fragile but how the links are in some of the the technologies that we use i mean a simple presumably coupled wire running down the hill uh, to the, the local telephone exchange takes an, a major international facility offline um, yeah. or into a very reduced mode of operation for a long time. They got the telephone connection back, but not the internet connection a few weeks back. And before that, we set up a radio link 
internet connection, similar to what was used for Merlin back in the old days, no. out of Jodrell. Slightly ironically, this is a C-band link in one of our observing bands. So <laughs> it's actually hidden, there's a number of hills, the site is up in the in the hills, and so it's actually, the transmitter isn't pointing over the telescope, it's actually on the far side of a hill from the telescope. We don't seem to cause major interference, not saturating the receiver, and it's in the the uh, C-band Wi-Fi bands, which are not an area we can observe anyway because of the bad interference from home domestic Wi-Fis most of the time. So are there are a lot of homes around the telescope. There are then? quite a few homes and houses around there, and a number of people actually use these C-band links because the uh, the cable television, which doesn't come all the way up the mountains, so up in the mountains where we are, people who've got internet are often actually using C-band microwave links for right. their internet. But this is a uh, a uh, 50 megabyte per second link as opposed to the sort of 100 gigabyte or whatever it is we can have normally. So you feel the effect. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so people can upload their files. The major or challenges are we haven't been able to do the remote observing, as I said, but also getting data off-site. We're used to just transferring data over the internet in this day and age, and of course, you know, big projects like a pulsar observing can, can uh, take data... Yeah, so 10 nanosecond intervals yes, and huge amounts of data. And so how do we get this off-site? We've actually gone back to people sending us disks by FedEx. We're transferring data onto those disks and putting them back into FedEx and sending them off to people. They're, again, a very old-fashioned... Very old-fashioned, well, yeah. seems an so. old-fashioned way of doing it now. Mm. But it's probably five years ago, ten years ago, at the most, since mm. it was uh, superseded. Yeah. One of the issues, of course, is we now have new backends which take more data. And, you know, it used to be the computing power wasn't there to produce this amount of data. And all that computing power is still there. Just the Internet connectivity is gone. So <laughs> in the old days when we had lower bandwidths and we used to ship things by often tape in those days, we would have had much less data because the computers just couldn't generate that much data. Mm. Yep. If you wanted 10 nanosecond data, you had a small bandwidth. And now we've got 10 nanoseconds over 800 megahertz bandwidth or something, and it's yeah. this huge quantity of data. Yeah, I mean, as you go down the, the scale, um, if, as you get smaller and smaller intervals, mm. it means more data. The converse is, of course, you're getting better resolution or oh, finer course, resolution. Yeah. So that's why it does it. But yes, we're talking mm. orders of magnitude of yeah. increases in data. You mentioned earlier about um, tracking sources. Now, Arecibo is a, a fixed bowl mm -hmm. in a valley. Yep. So the, the tracking of a source is done by adjusting the receiver, if, so, if I get this right? So yes, the dish itself is a spherical dish. And the reason it's spherical is that means when you look at it, you're always seeing the same curvature. And there's two different ways you can track something on a spherical dish, or two different optical methods you can use, really. Uh, they all rely on moving uh, the focus cabin around. And so we have two focus cabins on the telescope, one on each side, if you think of what our receiver looks like, with sort of a big arc. And there's things on both sides of that arc. And that arc goes out from, goes essentially from zero to 20 degrees on each side. And so we can actually track things down, or we can go to a zenith angle, as we call it, uh, of 20 degrees, essentially down to an elevation of 70 degrees. And so we can track things, and most sources we can track for a couple of hours. 
Now, the two focus cabins we have, one has a big long line feed hanging off it. The uh, a spherical bowl, unlike uh, the normal parabolic dish you have on almost every other telescope, which has a single focus point, a spherical dish has a line of focus, and a line feed is a, a way of sampling that and phasing everything up mechanically. In some ways, it's uh, an a- analog phased array feed and brings everything up in phase to a receiver at the focus cabin. The other one we have <coughs> is the Gregorian Dome. That was put up in the 1990s as part of a major upgrade at Arecibo, and that uses secondary and tertiary reflectors, uh, which have been shaped very carefully calculated by computers to actually create a point focus, which we can then move different receivers onto. And that's where we get the wide bandwidths that we can use for the pulsar science, particularly. Again, the wider the bandwidth, the more data, but the more information Mm. you can glean from from what you're observing. So, is Arecibo the only telescope in the world with that particular design, with a a movable uh, observing cabin? So, it's the only one for many years. The FAST telescope in China has a similar design. They're moving their cabin around, but also they haven't gone for this optical system that we have of either having a line feed or reflectors. They actually deform their primary dish away from being spherical and Mm. form a parabola pointing at the point on the sky which they want. And so in some ways they are steering a parabola and steering a focus cabin with it. So it's sort of a hybrid of what Arecibo does and what other telescopes do, which uh, is something that... You couldn't really retrofit to Arecibo, but it's right. certainly yep. challenging engineering concept. And, yes. uh, of course, at the moment, they are working through the challenges of getting it commissioned. I, the, there are people from Manchester involved as well. So, yeah, it's, it's certainly a fascinating concept. But just to, to push that a little bit further then. So most of the, the, the big telescopes in the world, uh, most of the big radio telescopes, uh, for that matter, uh, are steerable dishes. Mm-hmm. So you have a huge chunk of metal that you move around. It sounds easier to move a focus point around, to, to point at different um, um, sections of the sky. But obviously if it's hundreds are done one way, mm-hmm. and only one or maybe two now are done with a mir- uh, movable cabin, there's, there's um, trade-offs there that are not, not obvious or not that we, I don't know about anyway. Well, one of the trade-offs, obviously, is about how far down from the zenith you can go. With Arecibo, we can go about 20 degrees. Fast goes further, but still doesn't get down to the horizon. Uh, the Lovell telescope, though, you can point out the horizon. We did discover when I was using it, if you point out the horizon over Manchester, you get an awful lot of RFI and not an awful yes. lot of astronomical <laughs> signal. Uh, apparently, there's a lot of people living in Manchester doing a lot of things that cause RFI. But uh, yes. you can actually <laughs> you can actually point the Lovell Telescope or the Green Bank Telescope uh, right down to the horizon, and so cover everything you can see with your eyes. You can see with the Lovell Telescope. You can see with the Green Bank Telescope. Okay. Whereas with Arecibo, we can only point in that cone, which sweeps out about a, a third of the sky, but that's substantially less sky than the other telescopes. The other trade-off, though, obviously, is you can make a much bigger dish if you don't need to mm. move it. Yeah. And so there is this balance between do you want steerability, do you want sensitivity? And, of course, if you want both, you need to move to 
some to probably a large number of dishes rather than a big single dish, which is where you get a design like the square kilometre array, which will hopefully be coming online in the future. And yes, I know Manchester's very involved in that. Yes, because we host the headquarters mm. and uh, we have lots of teams and postdocs and students working on uh, applications for the SKA. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's always seems to be about 10 years away is the comment I've heard, but <laughs> that's probably the case with a lot of big projects, uh, certainly international projects. Mm. Um, you mentioned Cardiff before, so you did the, uh, a PhD at Cardiff. How did you end up at Arecibo? So I did a PhD in Cardiff and a postdoc position there after I finished my PhD. I was actually working on a neutral hydrogen survey uh, down in the southern hemisphere with parks, as I mentioned before. Uh, that was a project Cardiff was involved in through uh, Professor Mike Disney, who was my PhD supervisor. And I also became involved in a neutral hydrogen survey at Jodrell Bank at the same time. And just at that time, Arecibo had, was just installing... Uh, what we call a multi-beam receiver. This was the receivers we'd used for these surveys. Down in the Southern Hemisphere, we had a 13-pixel receiver, which to people used to digital cameras sounds like a very small number, but if in radio astronomy for many years, one pixel was all you got mm -hmm. and you just liked it. We had a four-pixel receiver on the Lovell telescope and Arecibo was building a seven-pixel receiver, or the Australians were building for Arecibo, in fact, a seven-pixel receiver called the... Uh, Arecibo L-band feed array, or more commonly known as Alpha, from its initials. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. And so they were starting up a whole bunch of H1 surveys, uh, neutral hydrogen surveys that is, and that was the field I worked in. So I applied to go there for a postdoc uh, working on these surveys, and they said, sure, we'll have you. And so I went over there essentially to search for galaxies, looking instead of for their stars, looking for their gas, and uh, I ended up still there. <laughs> and this is, what, 12 years later? Uh, 12 years, yes. It was 2005 I went there. So my postdoc finished 2008. This turned out to be a really bad time on the job market. Although I applied places, I actually ended up staying at Arecibo. They were very happy for me to stay on there. I'd originally, as I said, planned to be there for a three-year postdoc and then move off, but that didn't work out, so I mm -hmm. stayed there. And for the last couple of years, I've been group lead for radio astronomy there. So... Uh, Enjoying it still, I hope. Yeah. Enjoying it. It's been challenging the last few months with the hurricane coming through. And, yes. Um, there's been a lot of work getting back online, getting contacting the observers, letting them know about things, organising for all these scripts to be sent, trying to troubleshoot problems with the scripts and problems with the trying to work out how to fix problems with the telescope. Okay. I mean, obviously, it disrupts a lot of uh, major. Um, international programs mm. um, with the telescope being unavailable and then uh, the disruption thereafter. So it must be quite a challenge trying to manage all of that. Yeah, so some of the disruption, there's pulsar monitoring programs which normally want to come on every few months. And I think uh, people at Manchester are involved in some of these. But major ones like the Nanograv, the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, normally observe fairly regularly and they were unable to do so for a couple of months. One advantage of pulsars, of course, is that if you can detect it, you can time it. And so we don't need to, didn't need to get the absolute calibration of the telescope back before we could start doing pulsar science again, because for almost all pulsar science, you're interested in seeing the pulse and timing it 
rather than measuring how big that pulse is. Yes. And this obviously means we could go and do that as soon as we could get the telescope back and in motion. So essentially almost as soon as we could get that diesel supply. And uh, one of the other challenges we have is the telescope platform is pulled down into, into its position, into the focus position, by cables going down from the corners of the big triangle, if you... Uh, our has this triangle which the things sit underneath and the corners have lines going down under the dish to concrete blocks on the ground and the motors on those to pull the telescope down keep it in the focus position okay and that underneath area got flooded and we lost the, some some of the control cables to those uh tie downs as we call them so keeping the telescope in focus became challenging we actually uh i ended up uh, a week after the hurricane strapping a kayak to the roof of my car, <laughs> driving up the mountain with a kayak on the car, with everyone along the road looking at me with mouths agape saying, what on earth is this crazy person up to? Mm-hmm. Driving a kayak around after the hurricane. And actually it was brought up there so they could go underneath the telescope into a flood of a flooded valley underneath. And... Wow. They paddled the kayak around, taking electronic equipment in the kayak to the uh, the bottoms of the tie-downs so they could refit bits down there. And so it wasn't completely crazy. Obviously a good reason for doing it. But mm. Wow, I mean, the, the, the flooding must have been quite severe. And again, that's just due to the storm that came through? Mm. That the was hurricane. due to the hurricane. And then we got, we often get some flooding this time of year, but we have a pump under the dish that runs and pumps it out. Unfortunately, after the hurricane, the pump itself was submerged, and so right. we couldn't turn it on until the water dropped, and that took over a month for the water to drop far enough. We had to wait for it to just drain naturally. We don't really know how much rain we got. The rain meters say um, something like almost a metre of rain fell. I think wow. the actual, uh, from the hurricane centre at NOAA, the American equivalent of the Met Office, they think it was probably about half that in our area, which is still a large amount of rain. Some me- Apparently some rain meters, the rain meters work by having a little bucket which fills with water and tips, and they think the wind shook a lot of rain meters, so these we got these spurious readings of things tipping before they were full. That might be what happened to ours. I don't think anyone really knows. So those meeting, those maybe we just got really unlucky and did get that much rain. We actually don't know. But we certainly got an awful lot of rain and it was deep enough to go kayaking under the dish in. That's an extraordinary picture. Mm. Wow, okay. You mentioned your research was in the into the gas in galaxies, the, the gas distribution, I assume. Um, so do you want to tell us, can you tell us a little bit about that? And... Yeah, so essentially ever since my PhD I've been involved in neutral hydrogen surveys. This is looking for the gas in the galaxies using the 21 centimeter line. In the past, we've used telescopes often to look for, the, look at the gas in galaxies that have been discovered optically. We just take a galaxy out of a catalog, point the telescope at it, and say, "Oh yes, the gas is rotating at this speed. It's got this much gas, and therefore we derive these properties." What I do is slightly different. We're normally doing what we call blind surveys, so we don't know in advance what we're going to see. We actually survey a whole area of sky using these multi-beam receivers, these multi-pixel receivers, and we find the sources. 
uh, we make up a data cube of right ascension, declination, and as the third axis, the uh, velocity, which is the frequency of the 21 centimeter line, redshifted. And of course, okay. in astronomy, the velocity, when you're working in extragalactic astronomy, is a indication of the dif- distance because of the uh, Hubble, Hubble's law of the expansion of the universe. And so we can then use this to map where we see neutral hydrogen sources inside clusters. We've seen with uh, Arecibo, and in fact we saw with Jodrell, some gas inside, say, the Virgo cluster that doesn't have optical galaxies associated with it, there's no optical counterpart. You wouldn't think of pointing a telescope there unless... Yeah, okay. Uh, from just the optical. and But we found a number of sources, and we're still finding sources which don't have optical counterparts. And for the most part, in someone like the Virgo cluster, we think this must be due to some kind of interaction going on in the cluster. And so we also have people working on simulating what's going on there. And once we've found them with something like Arecibo, we can then go to the VLA and say, we want to make a high-resolution image of this and see what's going on here. So uh, we actually had some observations with the VLA last year Okay. I was meant to be working on them in the autumn. I didn't get round to it because we had a hurricane instead. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, that's uh, a distraction. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm hoping in the new year to get round to actually looking at that data and seeing what we see in terms of the H1 in these, whether it's whether they look like they're just blobs of gas, whether they look like they're rotating, whether they look like they're spheres. So we don't know really what we'll find when we look at higher resolution, but... Uh, It'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, would this potentially be a um, a component of dark matter that's not quite so dark anymore because we can see it in one electromagnetic wavelength, but not others? In one sense, it's dark matter and that it's not luminous. When people originally were saying there seems to be more mass than we can account for in clusters and things, Gas was certainly one of the things looked at uh, mm. in clusters, particularly the hot gas, rather than the uh, neutral hydrogen, which is after the gas has been taken out of the galaxies, which is probably what we're seeing, it gets heated in the cluster environment and becomes this hot X-ray gas that X-ray astronomers can see in the clusters. This doesn't account for, though, when things like WMAP and other mapping of the cosmic microwave background, I think, require the dark matter to be non-baryonic. So this is still baryonic matter. It's ordinary matter mm. like we're made of. It's yep. The hydrogen essentially is the fuel that goes into the stars that then becomes the heavier elements that make us up. So the actual dark matter that we talk about in cosmology is non-baryonic. So it's not made of ordinary uh, protons and neutrons and electrons. It's something weird and funky. Good description. <laughs> as accurate as any we've had <laughs> uh, I don't know if we can say anything better than weird and funky when it comes to what the dark matter particle might be <laughs> yeah there's something there quite yes. what we don't know at all we don't know No. But, uh, okay so when you're detecting this uh, neutral hydrogen are you looking at emission or absorption of um, um, light from behind for example so normally we're looking for the neutral hydrogen line in emission we actually see the gas in the galaxy emitting uh, every now and again we will see something against a distant radio source and we'll see it in absorption but almost all of our sources are actually in emission we do actually also sometimes look at absorption with Arecibo we'll do projects where we're looking at uh, distant quasars to try and find uh, gas in them in absorption 
that's your main project? Are there other areas that you're working on? So that's my main project has been uh, that what we call the Arecibo Galaxy Environment Survey, which has been ongoing essentially since I went there. And um, that's most of what I do scientifically. Uh, I also have various other projects going on, which I'm not the lead on. I'm lead on that project. I'm often the observer on other projects. People will take Arecibo time, get Arecibo time, and I'll be involved in their project as the observer since I know the telescope, I can do data reduction since I wrote some of the software for it. Okay. And if yeah. need to be, I can rewrite the software for it. Okay, so as long as they, as as well as the, the people doing the theory mm. and um, requesting the observations mm. to find particular information, there's obviously a team of people that are involved in actually um, generating the data, find, mm. making the observation, not just pointing the telescope, but like you say, if you're rewriting software, then it's different analysis, different data storage, diff potentially different kinds of information that's being captured. Yeah, and so a lot of our observers do their own observations, but uh, particularly in neutral hydrogen, it's often optical people who want the neutral hydrogen information and will often collaborate sometimes with me, sometimes with other Arecibo users who maybe aren't based at the telescope, sometimes in North America or Australia or wherever, they just find a local person who knows Arecibo and collaborate with them on doing the observations. How do you get time on Arecibo? So, From a personal yeah. perspective, of course. <laughs> well, so, yes, thank you. Uh, Arecibo is an open skies instrument, and so anyone anywhere can apply for time on it, uh, at least for time funded by the US federal government. And uh, all applications, we have two application deadlines a year. At the moment, those are in September and in March which the September deadline was also fun this year. We managed to slip it in between two hurricanes. So the applications come in. They get sent out for review by referees. So essentially it's a peer review process. Referees give grades. We have referees who are specialists in pulsar astronomy, non-pulsar astronomy, and then for the other fields of a telescope, for planetary radar and for the uh, aeronomy, the atmospheric space and atmospheric sciences who are normally looking at the Earth's ionosphere, and we send out proposals to these referees. We get their comments back with uh, comments and, in fact, grades. Then we uh, schedule the ones which got the best grades. OK, seems reasonable. I, yeah, points mm -hmm. make prizes. And uh, as I say, there's anyone anywhere can apply for this time. There's no US-only time on Arecibo. Yeah, there was some news articles earlier in the year about... Um, Arecibo potentially being closed is that at least that scenario at least being pushed back or hopefully not going to happen so the NSF announced a few weeks back that having carried out a thorough review they're going to be continuing science operations at Arecibo at a reduced funding level and seeking partners to do that uh, what we don't know at the moment is who the partner is going to be and so or what funding model they might follow for that we didn't even get to talk about planetary radars and the ionospheric studies that you do at Arecibo. Maybe a, a, another time. Well, thanks very much uh, for coming today and, and taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Okay. It's been great to be here again. Mm -hmm.